All right, guys, I'm, we're going to start with a confession. We're going to okay. start right away with a confession. Have you ever cast the actor version of you in a movie? Have oh. you ever made a movie and cast the actor version of you? That's a great question. That may have happened in the film we're going to talk about today. Yes. I, yes. It may have happened. Uh, I, I totally know what you're talking about. I did cast my niece who looks a lot like me, and people thought it was an avatar of me, and it was not. She just happens to look a lot like me. <laughs> Does she act like you? A little bit. We have kind of similar okay. voices, but yeah. Interesting. Interesting. You know what's? You want to hear something that's funny? Guess, I, okay. I always do. Always. So as soon as you said that, it immediately popped in my head. There's a short film that I made, and the, the two mm-hmm. cast members... Uh, the two cast members were Michael Swain, who yep. people recognize from the Small Beans Network, yeah, and uh, the other that you'll recognize from the Small Beans Network and also from some more news, Cody Johnston uh, was the other like main character in it, and I definitely wrote and made Cody me. Cody was in Abe. that short, yeah. <laughs> Cody How, is was Abe. he was he and a good he, Abe? He was he was damn good, uh, mm. and like he's no, he's no me. I mean, there's only one me, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was fantastic, and it, he was like a particle particle physicist, and he blew up he blows up the world. I love accidentally. That film. I yeah. love that film. That's a good uh, one. But his his mannerisms, everything that I gave him when I look back at it now, I'm like, oh my god, that is the most transparent thing in the world. Yeah, uh, I I am almost ashamed. Even though I have no right to be, because being me is awesome. So <laughs> he should have been glad to get to be you. Yeah, yeah exactly. He should be if writing anything, you thank you notes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cody, if you're to listening to this, give me money. Where's my <laughs> Where's my the thank, best you thank you note? My, yeah, my yeah. royalties, baby. Yeah, thank you for asking. I also did this, Abe. Uh, yeah, I uh, yeah. You may remember <laughs> a little student film called Union Dues. Uh, it was not mm-hmm. until after I was finished making the movie that somebody pointed out the villain is just actor me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you made yourself the villain. He made himself the I villain. I know. That's going to take know. a couple years in therapy to uh, unpack. Yeah, exactly. It's, I, There's I, some psychology there. I've only been adding I've only been adding to it, friends. It's a real backlog. <laughs> it's a real <laughs> backlog. Uh, anyway. How, I, do, how does it make you feel now, though? Let's I mean, I like the movie. Also, he was the funniest part of the movie. I felt. There you go. Uh, See? So I'm so not. So we all are narcissists. Yeah, a little bit. of course. Why are we in this business if you're not a narcissist? Mm. Uh, so I mention that because today's film uh, is a Midwinter's Tale, uh, directed yes, by is. Kenneth Branagh, and we have a wonderful uh, guest host who's going to walk us through a theory. Welcome back to the podcast, Jessica Ellis. Hi. I, I, Hi. Once again, I'm excited to still be here. I'm, I'm just excited. <laughs> I'm generally excited. Yes, and probably we will release this second now that I think about it. So it will definitely be back instead of the first time. Uh, and my OCD will take over if I don't say, this is Director Peace Theater. I'm Abe Epperson. And I'm Adam and- Ganser. Yes, I'm done. We're good. And here we are. We did it. We introduced. <laughs> oh, thank uh, God. Yes. Oh, thank God, indeed. I'm realizing. I think I've seen quite a few Kenneth Branagh movies and never really given him much thought as a director, and he deserves it. Uh, I really like his Hamlet. What's your favorite Ken- Kenneth Branagh? I like his. Ha- I like his Hamlet. The the, really? the late. Yes, I do. I like it. I know it's weird, but I do like it. 
Defend that. <laughs> Why do you like it? Um, I like it because it's gaudy and audacious. And okay. uh, I like him as Hamlet the best out of all the film Hamlets that I've seen. He's good as Hamlet. I yeah, he's really that. good in it. I mean, I also wouldn't defend it as like the best film, and it's been like 20 years since I watched it. Uh, but when I did watch it, I and also I just read Hamlet the first time, so there's a little bit of emotional here, like just sort of connecting to it. But he was amazing as Hamlet, and I really liked it. Uh, and I, yeah, it's good. That's it. I'm going to give it to Thor. Oh, I forgot that he did Thor. Yeah. He directed Thor. I think that was kind of the best use of his like tendency towards ostentatiousness because it was actually yes. funny in that movie. It worked. Yes. Over the top and over. He is ostentatious. That is true. He plays that in the Harry Potter movie he was in. Actually, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and he's amazing in that role. Yeah, I haven't seen Belfast. Am I super missing out? Is he? He's he directed that, right? Yeah, Belfast. I haven't seen. Belfast he wrote, wrote and directed. Yeah, it's uh, it's fine. It's fine. Okay, it's okay. you know a director telling his childhood story, and it's it's fine. It's okay. <laughs> That's that not seems... encouraging. That's not encouraging. I I I don't know. It it was not super memorable to me. Like it mm. it it. It's competent. A lot of his stuff is just competent, but not not amazing. By the way, we're I sorry think. if you're listening to this, Kenneth, because we're just coming out hot, just <laughs> dumping on you. Well, he, just, I mean, if anything, I would say my impression of him as a director from somebody who's only now looking up his IMDb <laughs> is that a lot of his film stuff is fundamentally about acting. Like, yeah. like yes. not all of it, but, but most of it is fundamentally about acting and the process of acting and uh, the theater. Mm -hmm. To some degree or another, um, certainly he got famous for Henry V. That I know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. The play is the thing, as we're gonna see, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, Jessica, you brought a theory or a a kind of thought to us, yeah. and we're like, yeah, this is cool. Let's put it on the fucking podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's interesting. Brandon is such an interesting like actor and director. Uh, because there's so much you can sort of glean about the directing persona by listening to him. Like, you know, the the thing that makes the role of a director so interesting is that your public persona becomes as much of your success or failure and sort of your story as the actual movies you make. Like, you know, who you are and how you present yourself to the world becomes a factor in your opportunities and what the what the audience is expecting when they see a movie by you. Um, you know, there are directors that can make sort of 20 years of very solid, dependable, bankable films, and then they have a bomb or they have a huge hit. Like one of my favorite stories is is Todd McCarthy, who got just publicly destroyed uh, for making The Tailor, which was an Adam Sandler movie. And I, I listened to him on a podcast and he was talking about like he was – at film festivals, just getting just ripped apart in reviews, like the worst things people had ever said about him while he was entering production on Spotlight, which the next year won the Best Picture Oscar. So like how Puts your career goes as a director, right? your, your personality factors into that. Um, and directors that like to take risks tend to get farther, even farther out there. Like because it's harder to craft a story about you if you're willing to go farther and 
take more chances that you're going to have a huge hit or a huge flop. And that takes a lot of like personal solidity. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. You got to like, be gutsy. Also, is Todd McCarthy the guy that's in the wire? Yes. He's like, he's the, he's the liar reporter. He's a liar yes. reporter. And man, like that's, he's got a crazy career. Cause that's the worst thing in the wire too. Right. Like a great show and he's fine in it, but it's like my least favorite thing in the wire. And then he made spotlight. One of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, like, mine it's too. Really yeah. good. Wow. Yeah. He's he's somebody that sort of defies expectations, but you know, you have to really be a solid person and solid and okay with yourself to be able to handle the public stories about you as well as what you're what work you're doing on set. And Branagh is a really interesting example to me because like when he started out uh in nineteen ninety-three, like he was groundbreaking in what he did because he he kind of rewrote Shakespeare for a late 20th century audience. I don't think anybody really thought Shakespeare movies were going to continue to be particularly successful, you know, after Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. That was kind of it for like 25 years. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's right. There was nothing notable. And then he made Henry V uh, in, I, I want to say, 89 um, I should have written that down. That would have that's, been smart. That's I true. like Henry V a lot. Henry V, baby. I thought Henry II was the best. Yeah. <laughs> that's one where he fights Apollo sequel. Creed. Or... Yeah, he yeah. fights Apollo Creed for the second time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he made Henry V, you know, he starred in it and he directed it. It was kind of hailed as like a visionary reimagination. And then he followed that up with Much Ado About Nothing, which right. was this very like sexy Italian romantic production. You know, Emma Thompson starred in it, Keanu Reeves, Denzel Washington. It was a crazy, like, surprise success um, and and a really great film. And critics started to give Branagh this, like, golden child reputation. Like, uh, Ebert wrote about Henry V. Branagh is able to see himself as a king, and so we see him as one. Which is just like, oh man, right. sure, Jeez. sure. And then he wrote that thing about North. Ebert. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's all right. Like the same year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, following those two movies in '94, he was kind of the perfect choice for a very ostentatious, over-the-top production of Frankenstein. Um, he he had kind of all the skills you would need. He was great at adapting classic language. He was showing an ability to take older stories and transform them into like sexy new versions that would resonate with modern audiences. And uh, Dracula had come out in 92 and been kind of a shocking success. So like Frankenstein was seen as a, as a spiritual successor to that and was poised for success. And then critics just destroyed that movie. Like it made its money back. It was commercially successful. But like the reviews were just incredibly br brutal. Um, one said like, Kenneth Branagh has indeed created a monster, but not the kind he originally envisioned. Uh, Frank Darabont, who wrote one of the drafts of the script said, that was the best script I've ever written and the worst movie I've ever seen. Man. That guy's a fucking assassin, by the way. Yeah. Darabont, Darabont has a way of like when he's bummed about a project that he was part of, he will nuke it. He will nuke yeah. it to the ground. But uh, he was not he was not alone on this. The original writer also said it was a misshapen monster born of Kenneth Branagh's runaway <laughs> ego. <Ooh. laughs> just and the New York That's Times personal, just said man. Branagh is in over his head. Like it's it like, was Have you seen it? Have you guys seen it? I have not seen it. Yeah. You haven't seen it? I it's, saw it a very long time ago. It's 
it's a lot. It's a lot. It also sure it features is. probably the the best two seconds of any movie I've ever seen. I'm ready. Which is, uh, you got Bobby D, who's yeah, yeah. you know the monster, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he he's I forget what he's doing, but he's like I think he's at the the foot of the bed of uh, Helena Bonham Carter, and then like she wakes up and he freaks out and he screams and jumps out the window, and the shots are. So choice. Are they? It's, I gotta see this now. You gotta watch it just I, for that. I two super seconds. super enjoy the idea of all the critics getting together at like some fucking back alley bar and just finding like what are the ways we can use monster based puns to hurt him. <laughs> We're gonna do it. How can we? What are you gonna do? Yeah. What are uh, you doing? Yeah. What are so you doing? So we don't overlap. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like they're all smoking. It's just you know everything I what? want this to be. I shouldn't laugh because it's. Being on the other end of it, awful. Being on the other end of a bad movie is one of the worst experiences you can have that is not death or an illness or something. Here's yeah. the beauty of critics is that no matter what they say, if they like, because they can hurt you, you know, yeah, they can. Even, yeah. even if words are not supposed to hurt you, they can hurt you. You just go, why don't you do it, motherfucker? Why yeah. don't you do it? Hey, Ebert, let's see your movie. And then he made yeah. what's your and movie? And it like? sucks too. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, that's it. Cool. But, oh, cool. <laughs> so, I mean, this was probably the worst thing that could have happened to Kenneth. I mean, like, he was riding yeah. all this high, like... Yeah, yeah. And he is known mm-hmm. as kind of an egotistical person, or he was at, in this era. He was pretty young at the time. And I think his next... You know, he had to kind of get off the mat and make another film. And his next film, which is The Midwinter's Tale, and it was called In the Bleak, Bleak Midwinter in the UK... No one knows exactly why it has two titles, but uh, is him having a mental crisis about how he can possibly go on as a director. It's There are a lot of signs in that movie that the director is going through something and trying to find a way to get up off the mat. And I just find that a very fascinating yeah. film to study. Because even if films are not literally about yourself, when you're making a movie, life bleeds in. In some in some way, and I think it it does in a really fun way in this film. I think you uh, never make a film that's divorced from you. Like you, you're always making yourself in some way in a film. Like so, sure. But this guy has a lot of luxury in a weird way to make a film about that, right? Like uh, I'm not I'm not trying to like belittle him or like belittle this concept, but it's like, okay, he had a bad run. He's made what like thirty films. How many has he directed? I'm looking at it now. It's like what? Oh yeah, he's had no problems. Since right. really like and like I'm not that doesn't diminish the pain of being rejected. It's really it's really bad. Like making a bad film getting rejected is bad. But also he's also just making a film about that. Like it's a can't lose situation for Kenneth Branagh in some ways. You know what I mean? It's uh, true. I do think in the context of the era, like he was a British director. We weren't super into those. In the, like the the worry was yeah, could yeah. he could he get branded as not being able to do anything but Shakespeare. Like, could, That's could true. the one big commercial failure uh, that be it? Could there be, you know, no Thor in his future because of that? Um, and he avoided it, weirdly, because uh, he also made Wild Wild West, which we'll get into, too. But like, I'm so glad you remembered it. I'm so glad you remembered that. Shakespeare, forgotten Shakespeare play, Wild Wild yeah, West. Yeah. <laughs> His his second attempt at, at big ostentatious commercial did did not go great either. Yeah. But uh, th- yeah, it, it's interesting. So just to give a basic quick summary of Midwinter's Tale because it's kind of an obscure 
movie in in his history. It's the story of a struggling actor named Joe who's very desperate and jealous and can't get cast. And and kind of in desperation, he agrees to help his sister mount a production of Hamlet in a church that's in danger of being closed down over Christmas. Um, And he hires a group of completely misfit actors who are all basically crazy and lonely enough to do a play where they won't make any money over Christmas. Uh, And it has a lot of like classic theater type roles in it. There's a cantankerous like old actor and like a flamboyant, uh, very campy actor and a secret alcoholic, a a child actor who's been doing child parts and is now in like his 30s and still trying to do them. And a a very sweet like young widow who won't wear glasses and falls down a lot. So it's kind of like an a a cast of English characters that like you see in every play about theater or every movie about theater, they're, they're all there. And this, the yeah. film just follows them trying to stage this production of Hamlet as all of their like personal problems come into play. There's estranged family relationships that get fixed and, you know, everybody has emotional outbursts and they're, you know, it's a very actors about actors kind of movie. But it's cute. It's a cute film. Like I, I like I found it fairly winsome actually. Uh having never watched it until ten thirty this morning. You know? <laughs> I, like, yeah. I, I, I liked it. I was like, oh, this is you know, I mean it's very verbal and very actory, but it's still winsome, right? Abe, do you hate this? Is this too pretentious for you? I didn't hate it. Uh it, it just definitely felt I don't know. I guess maybe it was just basic. It's it feels very basic yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like definitely it, especially like it just given like Jessica you mentioned all like the cr- the crew uh our cast of, you know, uh never will be's and it's like this is every acting script I've ever read. Yes. 100%. Yeah, yeah it's, 100%. It's 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 thoroughly uh kind of woe be me but also like and the play is the thing, but mainly it's like, wow, we're a bunch of, we, we can't, we're lovable because we have passion, God damn it, and right. we love life. Right. And it's like, yeah, that that's true. And I do like to surround myself with people like that. Um, I think but it's it also- it does get exhausting. <laughs> it, yeah, it's exhausting if you feel like you can't connect to actors as a metaphor for human nature. Like if you can't sure. get, the, if you can't do that loop to loop, and by the way, I don't think you always can. Uh, then it is exhausting because it definitely feels like problems that you know you just don't relate to if you're not an actor. But like if you see it as a kind of Sisyphusian struggle uh, in which we're all kind of trying to put on a play, if you will, uh, there's something universal about it that I liked. I mean, I don't know, and I'm not saying yeah, that. Yeah, no, I I, yeah, like it, those thoughts were occurring to me as I was watching it, and maybe I'm trying to make it work more than it deserves. But it was working for me for that reason. I think it's definitely a, a, you know, it's a film made with a niche audience. It's it's a film for theater people, basically. It's it's Mm -hmm. design, and I think that's part of what I find interesting about it, and like part of one of the reasons I see this as like Bran is going through a midlife crisis on screen, although he's not on screen. Um, Uh, Isn't he though? Isn't he though? Yeah. Oh, he very much is. (laughs) I promise. I will talk about that. Okay. Great. uh, He he is. This is him cocooning back in what he knows. And it's evident in so many aspects of the films. This is somebody who has been slapped in the face and has ducked back into like their very safe cave. Because, you know, before he was a film actor, he was a theater actor. He's traditionally trained. Totally. You know, and that's 
that's his safe place. And he needed to go back there, I think, in order to have the courage to get back out to Hollywood. You know, because this was a very low budget film, didn't have a big release. This was not something he was trying to even reclaim his reputation on. I think he just wanted to convince himself he could still do it and he had something worth doing. Um, and I like this. I'll, yeah, this is much more of a psychological premise than a directing one, but there are some aspects in the directing that that support my my thesis here. One of which is that he's using black and white, which oh, he's yeah. done a, a few times. Um, like Belfast is the most relevant example because that's about his childhood. And he's talked in interviews about choosing to use black and white because he thinks it evokes a sense of nostalgia. Um both just in how we think about old movies and older life, he likes to duck back into that. There's no real reason for this film to be in black and white. Um, and the style of black and white he uses, and I couldn't find a lot of information on what camera he used, um, is it's not it doesn't look like an old movie. It it doesn't look like he's trying to recreate, you know, something that would have been shot in 1940. And it it has this interesting effect of obscuring the structural elements in the background and puts your eyes on the actors because they are, it, the contrast is so high. They're so much brighter than the background. All you're watching is people move in kind of an underlit space constantly. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and it doesn't, it sort of sharpens your focus. It, 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 it's very theatrical in that effect where what you're, used to looking at as a proscenium where there isn't a ton of depth and and you're mm -hmm. focusing more on the actor's movement. So I think he may say it was in, to invoke nostalgia. I, I think he's lying. I think he was actually trying to recreate the feel of a theatrical experience. <clears throat> I think, yeah, he's burying it down. And the other thing that struck me is that the, because if you look at, this is 95. So like, if you're looking at like black and white films also made in this time, uh, it kind of had a reemergence but there was a lot happening that was being done to modernize it. Like, for example, there's this one sequence where the uh, we're, we're like doing the auditions for all the players and the jump cuts are like very prevalent. And they're like specifically jump cuts that are like because jump cuts existed in like the 70s, you know, like it's a very Hal Ashby kind of thing. But like <clears throat> in the 90s, jump cuts meant something different. They were usually more like punk in their appropriation. It was like to punctuate a moment or yeah. to let you feel a silence and then rip you out of it. Like it was always done with immediate emphasis. And he does that and Kent Brownow does this in this movie. So it's got this modern sentiment and modern editing style. But black and white always says to me like classic films, right? Right. So it's kind which of a, didn't do. There's that. kind of a Jarmusch vibe to this. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. like, like. In fact, I think the he sets up a lot of scenes in like static wides, which I know you're going to talk about probably. Yeah. Uh, which is a very Jarmusch thing. Like whenever you watch his first, like I don't know, three four movies, almost all of them have no coverage. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like like scenes that are like, here's the why. They do the scene, they leave it, right? Like there's at least one scene like that in almost every one of his films. It feels like he's, I'm not saying he's borrowing from Jarmusch, but he does seem aware of that. Like I feel like the tone is similar here to his films. Is that yeah, I, outrageous? Yeah, I think that's probably true. It, I, I, you know, and it's also the era where just like 
Sundance was becoming a thing. This was uh, black and white was sort of an arty thing you could do to make your movie stand out. And I don't know if he was trying to to do that. I think the Jarmusch thing is probably a better comparison. But I I do think it was there's there's something about black and white that connects Branagh to simplicity, and you see it in the other stuff he's shot in black and white. He just when he's thinking about something nostalgic, that's where he goes. Um, that's kind of his one trick <laughs> to invoke nostalgia. Well, it's very aust- it's very austere, right? Yeah. Like like in fact, it might be as simple as like saving him money. You know, like in in like he's making this thing in this giant church, right? Most of this film takes place in a church in an office and outside the church, and that's it. Yeah. So, like, if you don't want to dress that space, which is kind of a joke in the film, shooting it in black and the white in black and white means all you have to do is make sure that the clothes that you have and the the art and stuff that you have feels good in a two tone palette, uh, or maybe not even that since it's so independent film, right? Like, you don't have to worry about color coding and like, uh, it just it just really makes the the workload of making the film have a look much smaller in this case. Yeah, and I mean it's also such a direct contrast to what he was doing in yeah, Frankenstein, totally. you know, that it is it's a visual stripping down of the story to to just the essentials, to just the people. Um yeah, I think it was a very intentional choice. Uh and and also a sign that he was not not <laughs> he doing was working well. something out. He was yeah, yeah he was work, working something out. Um and then another thing that that I find really interesting that he did is it it, it opens with like a full song about yeah. why not to be an actor and then this very Shakespearean monologue with the main character talking about having a nervous breakdown um and being 40, I think, and not not knowing what to do with his life and the thing is, is he casts this other actor, Michael Maloney, in this role. Joe is the main character, who is doing a Kenneth Branagh impression. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> there's no other way. Like Branagh insists in interviews that the character is not supposed to be him, and I, it's him. It's just, it's just literally the gestures are the same, the mannerisms are the same, the way he stresses words in a sentence. He's clearly doing. A Branagh impression. I would like Branagh so much more if he would just admit it. You know what I mean? Just admit right. it, man. <laughs> just He's, admit that yeah, you cast yeah, yourself. I fucking did it. Yeah, yeah, I did it. That's right. I, I cast myself in the film. It's about actors and a director who's not feeling great. Is that okay? And I'd be like, yeah, that is okay. We'd be like, that's, a, <laughs> that's one way to work through your, yeah. your shit, man. Yeah. I mean, it's a good enough movie that it justifies that choice, I think. It, mm-hmm. it is. But I mean, he had just gotten, you know, he's he's in Frankenstein. He had gotten beaten up for scenery chewing like yeah it and and he had been the lead of his other two movies I, again right. like I, this goes back to like this is a directorial crisis you know he is afraid that maybe he's only special because he's also been the lead of his films maybe it's all been facade like and that when you get down to really his directing ability there's nothing there like he's skated by on being able to act and this is the first movie since his very first film peter's film peter's friends i think where he's not on screen um so that also seems like a deliberate choice but then (laughs) he casts somebody who does an impression of him so can we can we breathe just i again i'm not i don't want to dunk on brano that's that's i have no interest in doing that so because and i don't think you do either i don't think anybody does so like we're not here to dunk on him but like joe's performance is i think the thing that works the least in the movie for me 
Did you guys feel that way? Like he's so manic and he has no time between like he he's like he's operating at 110% speed in a way that no longer yeah. feels like how people act. Yeah, you know? he's definitely he's definitely overcharged. Yeah, and I'm sure Branagh has that energy in real life, but it it really to me reeks of the director doesn't know how to control this character. Like he doesn't have a real sense of what this character should be compared to everyone else that I think he had a pretty strong and clear sense of how to guide them. I actually didn't feel that way. I felt oh, that he, he felt really a part of his world. Uh, in really? a way, I do think that what Jessica is saying is true. Like it's perfect. Like what you're saying to me, it's like, he's making fun of himself. He is kind of doing the thing okay. where All right. he, like, okay. I think he knows what he is. Like he's self-parodying here? I think think there's a little bit of self-parody because it fits in this world where people are falling down, people are drunks, people are, you know, just not really supposed to be there. But in the end, they pull it off and they they make some art, you know? Like, that's what I think he is an egotist in that he's like, yeah, my methods are strange and I'm hard to deal with. But in the end, I do get results, right? 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 Like, that's the insecurity that he's... That's uh, elucidating right now, but like him being a over the top thing, I I think is a part of the comedy. I don't think it's him like on trying. Per- you think on purpose? It, yeah. Okay. Like so, I'm going to give you a continuum here, and I have to actually name the things in the continuum to for this to work. Okay. But like I'm a, so nah, I can't do this because I it started with Anchorman, and that's not the right thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's why I came. I'm like, wait a minute, how Anchorman is it? Which is the wrong question to ask. But I use that because I just happened to watch that movie, the the second one, mm-hmm. and I didn't like it because I didn't like the jokes so much that they were doing. Like I feel like, eh. yep. even though they're self parody, I didn't really like them. Most yep. of them, not you all. You need of them, the but jokes to be good, otherwise, no one's on your side. So, well, I, it's like you can be like even if you're owning yourself, like you're the joke, you're still doing jokes that are not my favorite jokes. And I think the same critique bears here where, okay, I can accept your explanation, Abe, and you know people are going to feel how they feel about it. But like, I don't think the jokes that he's making about himself are that successful. They're whereas not. a lot of the other ones really are. Okay. You know, like, I, Fair think, I mean, like, I, I actually found several of these stories pretty winsome. Like the old guy and the, and the, uh, the, his, his, essentially his gay Gertrude? roommate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was great. That stuff was really good, I thought. Um, Yeah, it has heart. And there is this kind of, I think probably, Jessica will probably touch on it, so I don't want to speak for her. But I do think that there is an element of he has this problem that he's supposed to be both kind of a character that is laughable but also the identity character, you know? So And he, yeah, he's a little bit between the two. So he has to jump back and forth and i think that that there's some awkwardness there uh, and maybe that's hard to just, navigate but. yeah identity characters are tough in general because how bland do they need to be you know yeah. uh to 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 not be a parody or a satire i don't know anyway we've gotten far afield from what you're saying no i I think it's a good point like you know joe is kind of um he's playing the straight man to everybody else's insanity to a certain thing but he's also going through a nervous breakdown so that's he has kind of two objectives in the script which is Mm -hmm. is difficult that can flatten the performance i will say i think there's moments he really locks in 
and is great. When he and his sister are, are talking about what Hamlet means to him and why he chose Hamlet, and he talks about the first time he saw it, like that is a moment where the actor that was good. Yep. slows down and locks in, and it it's so powerful in just and that that's, moment. That's real Branagh right there, right? Yeah. That yeah. is real yeah. Branagh. There's just no replacement for that. That, that, that genuine that verisimilitude that you feel. And I think that that is why we can do, all we can do is look at Branagh and the other instances and say, yeah, he's playing up a impression of himself that he thinks is funny. Yeah. I think he's kind of doing both things. He's, he's, he's trying to create a meaningful piece of art about theater. And he's also trying to work out his own shit on camera. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's, 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 a bold that's hard choice. Yeah. That's bold a, choice. I mean, yeah. And one of the other ways you really see, like he's stripping this back to a theatrical experience is the camera is dead. The camera yeah. is like so static. There's a whole scene near the beginning where they put the camera at the top of a hill and lets all of the characters like walk, I don't know, for like two and a half minutes all the way up the hill towards the camera while talking. And it's like, you never, there's no coverage. There's no cut. It's just people walking toward a camera for a very long time. Um, and that is, that's such a theatrical experience, right? Cause your perspective when you're sitting in a theater doesn't move. Everything you're viewing is in a wide and is, is at this distance. Um, and also the way he stages actors when he's not moving the character shows an understanding of theatrical blocking over film blocking because he's yep. he's using them to create depth in the frame. Like frequently there'll be two characters having a conversation in the foreground and like in the background you see someone running around doing something exactly like you would in a in a in a play. Like that yeah. that's that's theater directing 101. Um he he uses a lot of 50-50s uh an angle that is n- not very intimate. Uh, 50-50s for the audience is uh, essentially when two people are looking at each other in profile. Like we're we're watching and we be, see the profile of each character as they're looking at each other. Uh, it's an angle that I tried to put in crack sketches, I'm going to say a hundred times, almost never got it in because it, it's just not a very intimate or funny angle. Yeah. Uh, and he shoots it a lot. And yeah. uh, that says that something about his... Like yeah, it says something about there. his talent i think too that he's still able to get real physical comedy out of those shots because those shots are again like you know the most powerful thing in a film is always the actor's two eyes you know and and a lot of times you don't get that in this film and it still works so that's just a supplemental addition to what you were saying well yeah i mean partially that's because he's directing actors from a theater background largely right. who know right. how to act in profile and and but also i think again like that's him being like i need to go back to basics i need to go back to what i learned and recreate that because that's just if you come up in theater that's how you think about blocking and that's how you think about scenes um mm-hmm. and he, there he is again um and a, another thing that the really the way the cut often works is that the ca- the camera will stay in a single area and you'll see like groups of people come into the frame and have a little conversation and they'll go away as other groups of people come on and have a little conversation and then go away which is completely not a film thing you don't do that in film like that's mm-hmm. that is all theatrical like 
you're you're utilizing the whole space and keeping movement dynamic while you can't move the perspective. So he was just dancing around with bringing theater techniques to film over and over again. And it's it's surprisingly successful. Like it not only does it keep things dynamic and keep the story moving, it doesn't feel flat in, in any way or like slowed down by by that kind of pacing of of like scene chunks. But also it does sort of recreate the theatrical experience. I, I you feel like you're watching a play, I think, more than a movie. Yep. Uh, he's just re- he's really good with background and foreground. Like he he's really really good at that, which c- keeps it from feeling bland and presentational, as you said. Yeah. Like th- there's a great sequence where he's explaining to the old guy, like <laughs> he being Joe, is explaining to the old guy like how stuff's gonna work, and clearly the old guy thinks this play is bullshit. And you keep seeing them pass by in the background as more and more details of what's going to happen in this play are being explained. Meanwhile, you're actually meeting and having a sense of uh, who the main cast is in the foreground. That's the actual prime, like primary piece of the scene. Uh, but in the background is that great joke, and it keeps it from feeling like four people huddle around a campfire or something. It's yeah. really good. Yeah. Yeah, it it it's really the defining directorial feature of the film is how he's moving yeah. people around in yeah. front of a camera. That's built. what's really interesting is he moves the camera when they're supposed to be acting. Like it starts to get much more dynamic any time that they're acting out scenes or the first time the camera really moves at all in the entire movie is in the read through. There's like a whole montage sequence where they bring back the song from the opening and that's when the camera starts like jumping around and you really start getting close-ups for the first time in the, and this is like 25 minutes into the movie maybe um so it's it's interesting that the moment they start acting that's finally when he feels comfortable moving but anytime they're just supposed to be being who they are we're stopped and we're watching them and and it's this very removed perspective um and then kind of the, the the big signal for me now i come from a theater background and from a writing background so like all, all of this stuff presses my particular understanding of of film and theater. The fact that he's making a movie that's talking about Shakespeare, about after having had these two huge successful hits that were literal Shakespeare, is like the most theater kid thing you could ever possibly yeah. do. Like that's 100%. the most he's run back home. <laughs> he's in his safe place talking about things he that are really important to him is that he's using it as metaphor um and he's using it as a meta commentary on where he is in his career. He's talking about, you know, it's not a mistake that he picked Hamlet. He's he's talking about uh, someone who is having a, a personal midlife crisis about what they should do, someone who's at a crossroads, you know, and they're all of the subplots that surround the story are also related to Hamlet. You know, the the old, the, the gay character has a son from a brief relationship he had had many years before who he's never talked to. And this comes out in the course of them making the play that he has no contact with the son and he wishes he would know them. Of course, there's something like that going on. Like everyone in the film is processing some kind of egotistic and familial grief. Um, and the movie keeps asking this question, like, why do actors process all of their things through Shakespeare, which is, I think, something Branagh was asking himself. And at one point, the movie literally stops dead and has Joe say, why do we do this? Why do we spend our lives doing this? 
does anybody care? Is it all important? You know, and it's literally like Branagh is just having the crisis on screen at that point. <laughs> it's not even subtle anymore. <clears throat> right. Gloves off. Yeah. Yeah. And he it's... shoves the actor aside. He's like, I'll take over for one scene here. Uh, just steps in front of camera and starts talking. That yeah. doesn't really happen, but it felt like it could have. <laughs> yeah, he might as well have. Like it, it, yeah. That is the moment where he's at the most branagh too, the actor, I think, is is that really you could sub Branagh into that scene and nobody would, the performance would be almost identical. Um, so right. to bring so- this all together, there's, there's a concept in Shakespeare scholar, scholarly work that I'm sure Branagh was familiar with that I think Branagh was kind of playing within this. So, okay. In the Renaissance, I'm sorry, this is going to be a tiny little history lesson. Oh, yeah. We're in, doing it. In the Renaissance, <laughs> in in the in a, in the Elizabethan era specifically, there was this concept called self-fashioning, which was that the outward sign of your power defined your power. There were certain fabrics that only nobles or royals could use because it was an outward sign of their power. Like Queen Elizabeth, when you see portraits of her, she's got her hand on a globe or there's ships in the frame. All of these things that said like, your exterior is the definition of your power. You draw power from your outward appearance and your persona, which is, I think, a state that Branagh was very in, writing high off of his first few few movies. He had these things that proved his success to them. But then Mm. when Shakespeare's son died um, towards towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, he underwent in his writing this massive transformation where he stopped writing comedies and, and histories, and we get Hamlet and Macbeth and Lear and all of these plays and there, there's a concept that was, I, I'm not sure exactly who invented it. I heard it from a professor at UCLA named Arthur Little called unself-fashioning, which was that in retaliation to the idea of self-fashioning that had propelled the English world during Elizabeth's reign was this idea that what are you if you strip everything away? You know, Hamlet and Macbeth and Lear are all about what if you take everything away from a person? Right. Who are they at the, the bottom of that? You know, are they worth anything? at the bottom of that. And Branagh is doing exactly that in this movie. He's, you know, it's it's made for almost no money. The release is tiny. He's not going to get fame out of it. He's using generally unknown actors. There's a few, there's a one of the actresses from uh, Ab- Absolutely Fabulous, whose name is escaping me right now. Jennifer uh, Saunders? Maybe. Is that who you're thinking of? I, 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 yeah. Uh, there is, but generally it's, you know, it's mostly theater actors or small kind of character actors. There's no chance for big commercial success here. There's no chance for his ostentatious style that we're used to. You know, this is literally someone being like, okay, will people like a movie if I make it and I don't do any of my tricks? Like if, if it's really just me talking about my life and my experience, like, will it be of any value? And I think he needed to make that movie in order to then go make Wild Wild West, which I don't really understand how he got there from here. But <laughs> ignoring that part, like money for a moment, what a he, thrill. he paused and asked if he should keep doing this. And he asked that through making a film. And I, I don't know, I find that really beautiful. Like that's very vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would I love think so. to hear think... what he thinks about it now. Cause this was, you know, 20, five years ago at this point. Right. Yeah, I, I really like that un- self-unfashioning aspect. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, I agree with that. I, I think uh, I think this is what we're always asking of our like our meaningful directors. 
is to sort of find a way to put themselves through a crucible and then depict it well on screen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we're, 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 I mean, at least there's certainly an, an avenue that we, of, of people who we expect, usually they're actor directors, right? Like actually I was thinking as I was reading this, like maybe there's a little bit of Woody Allen in him, you know, like, and I'm, I know that Woody Allen is uh, terrible now, obviously, and has probably always been terrible. But if you evaluate him as a film creator, he's always doing this, this very thing that Kenneth Branagh is doing here. Yeah. He's doing it in every one of his films yeah. with a similar aesthetic, actually. Uh, and I think that we want that. The, some artists, we want that. I think we want it out of William Shakespeare, too. You know, that's probably why he's drawn to it. Yeah, I, I think for sure. Yeah, I mean, and he had, I, I really like the idea that, like, he, he'd shown that he could do Shakespeare. And I don't think that necessarily gave him a ton of value as a person, or at least a very easily shattered value. But yeah, I think your point about Woody Allen is actually a very good one. The thing about Woody Allen is he couldn't make any movies about anything except being Woody Allen. Correct. And Branagh has he transcended tried. that yeah, and, and, with mixed results. Yeah, I mean, I think he tried to make your, you know, Purple Rose of Kairos and stuff sure. uh, that are less. But like, and I think part of the reason why we like Branagh's Shakespeare is Branagh finds himself in Shakespeare. Yeah. Like, and that's what we connect to about it. Uh, like he, it's, there's really personal stuff that he manages to bring out because we want that stuff. That's, that's what we're consuming here is the humanity ultimately. Yeah. Uh, and I know it seemed like this is dissing Branagh a little bit, but honestly, like, you know, he was a very young director when this all happened. He was very young. He got success quite young. And like, this is a real process you have to go through finding how your ego fits into it and whether you have the psychological fortitude to survive as a working director is a very important part of the process. Like it's, it's, it's not, I don't mean to be derisive of him. Like this was no. just a very naked way of going through it. Well, For you sure. gotta feel, you gotta feel bad. Or, or like, I, I guess you gotta feel afraid if you're, if you get known for directing Shakespeare, you know what I mean? Like, because you're always going to wonder, is it me or Shakespeare? That's what I was going to kind of like. So when we're talking about because I want to add one more thing to that question, which is yeah. that uh, the self unfashioning really comes down to what are you in your soul, which right. is what, you know. And so when we're going back to mom, as Jessica says, uh, going back to mommy Shakespeare uh, and, you know, <laughs> in 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 the, the warmth of her bosom. Uh, that isn't necessarily a, that's still reliance to something. And I'm surprised that there's not more introspection into that. You know what I mean? Well, maybe, when it's, you, maybe it's when difficult. You, when you come up through theater, you're taught that it is Shakespeare. It's not you. Like you can embody right. this for a little while, but like, you know, the director right. is fundamentally significantly less important in theater than in film. And, right. you know, it's, it had to be a struggle for Branagh to look at that and be like, wait, is it just me? Like, maybe I should sublimate myself back in that concept and see what I find of me in there. Because he had been riding high on the idea that it was him for a little bit. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I, I think also the fact that he's never let go of being an actor. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I think he still really wants to act. I think he still loves acting. And those are fundamentally different jobs very you know, much. like yeah. yeah like i mean like when they teach directing like one of the things that they and like how to talk to actors one of the things they do in a lot of film schools is 
like they they make the fundamental divide one of these people is the watcher the other one is the watched and you can't ask the actor to be the watcher because then they're not being watched like they can't be self-analytical like that <clears throat> right yeah. so like him Kenneth Branagh doing both things i think suggests how insecure and i don't mean that in an emotional way i mean like just you know sort of how he self-fashions as you said yeah like how how uh, amorphous his feeling about being just a director is. You know, uh, he's built his, his directing career is based on a lot of things that aren't his directing prowess at this point. Maybe yeah. period. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's it. <laughs> no, <it's laughs> that was my little. well put together. It makes me uh, great. W- ask, wonder, have you had what kind of crisis of faith uh, have y'all had? <laughs> oh God, we're gonna do that. You know, no, like, I got like, unfashioned. Oh well, you don't have to tackle all of it. I just want to like, have you put, <laughs> have you put into a movie, uh, like a feel like a uh, anxiety that you that came from filmmaking in specific? Because uh, I think I have, but like it's tough. I that's the other thing is it's a tough thing to navigate. Kind of just what you said about the watcher versus the watched. Being able to observe what you're doing in any role, uh, whether it's writer or director, I think that that's also hard to do Uh, because sometimes you kind of design your... In order to do the work, you kind of design a system that like you mislead yourself somewhat. You tell yourself, okay, this is how I can do it. There's a veil between you and what you're really saying. Uh, Yeah, and so you may not perceive it, but I think that... uh, one of the things that I often would do is that, like, especially when I came into comedy early on, like college age, you know, the, like 2007, I want to say, um, that's when I was like unsure of exactly what my voice was. And I got distracted, I'd say, toward comedy initially because of when I looked at comedic films, when, you know, kind of like this stuff, kind of like, um, where the camera's static or there's very simple rules to obey. Um, mainly that like, just put the funny face in front of the camera, keep the n- narrow eye line if you can. Right. Because the, these are tricks that I learned are. early on because yeah. it's like, if you do that, you're basically doing no wrong because you're not getting away with your, you know, nonsense. So like in my insecurity of not sure, not sure if I had a, uh, voice, I kind of nullified the question by choosing kind of source material where you could be invisible and transparent. Yeah, you could in disappear your from it, right? And mm-hmm. disappear entirely from the conversation. Um, and I just think that that's an interesting way to start a career as well. Uh, but like, that's what a lot that, of directors have to do now. Yeah, I mean, there's other pressures that come, external pressures that come through that are just like, you know, where is the money coming from? Who, how much control of a situation do you actually have? But I mean, like when you're get, this is still back in the day when we were making sketches on nothing. So I had every ability to make different choices here. I just find that it's interesting that I didn't ever make a sketch about a director uh, not finding his voice. But I, I definitely did make a movie that was not that was tangent or like a short film that was tangentially related. 
Uh, I just wonder if you guys had any of those kinds of things where you made, did you make a, a director's movie or an actor's movie or anything like that? I'm going to let Jessica go first. Uh, well, I haven't really directed all that much besides my feature, um, mm. but which was probably, you know, not the best way to start a career. But uh, I definitely, I, I don't think it bled through into the narrative as much as the choices I made while directing. Like I mm. was, I found myself like extremely nervous to move the camera ever because I just had this insecurity that it, it would look filmy you know like mm, <laughs> that yeah. it was like, like the away. john singleton disease yeah, yeah. it was it, and and it was really a struggle for me to be like no i can design you know motivated interesting shots that move and are dynamic and it's not gonna look like ooh, look at me faking being someone that understands camera language like that and i think that affected the film in, in some ways is that, yeah. that i was scared to move the camera it's funny how the first like few films you make uh seem like they're <coughs> cosmically designed to make you restrict your tool palette down to its bare essentials before you get more confident in well let it, usually you stuff. have no money so that right that's, well, a that's big the factor. thing well that's the thing right is like kenneth Branagh has more resources here so he gets to make something that's a little bit more directly about what he's talking about whereas like i'm thinking to myself when's the last thing i made that was me like, what's the last thing I directed that was Adam and not a, an adaptation of a thing that's not Adam? And uh, that might have been 10 years. You know, it's been a very long time since I made something that was that I really felt sole ownership of and that was autobiographical in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I don't like things I've made. I made a lot of things I really like. Uh, and I put so you're myself, saying we're gonna get we're gonna get that Adam films coming up soon here. Is what I, you're I wish I had I wish I could promise you that. If I mm-hmm. could, I would. I'd promise you it right now. I, I don't control uh, the film industry. <laughs> if I did, then here they would come and they'd all be fucking rancorous and tortured, my dude. I'll uh, be front row to your I know you will, tale. you fucking beautiful guy I love. <laughs> uh, no, but for real, like, uh, actually, I've been writing more stuff that has been more autobiographical, and this kind of panged me in that way. Like I've been, and I'm not gonna go into all the fucking things I'm writing, but I've been I've been writing features for the last like six years basically, and all the ones that I'm writing that are solo, uh, they you know they have clearly become more of a way of talking about what it's like to go through this part of life mm-hmm. that I'm going through, uh, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think that's what I have to offer the world. Uh, I think it's what everyone has to offer the world. So like, I don't begrudge Kenneth Branagh for doing this. I think it's great that he did it uh, and that it was quasi-entertaining. I just begrudge it when it's not entertaining. You know what I mean? Like That's <laughs> that's my objection. It's, is it entertaining? And if it's not, then I'm not into it. Uh, have you seen, uh, have either of you guys seen Hamlet 2? Yes. I, you love Hamlet 2. That's one of your I favorites. Love Hamlet you I love Hamlet I loved Hamlet 2 too. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I need to see it. It is just ridiculous. It's just, yeah. it's it's funny because it is sort of a Kenneth Branagh movie if he actually made a comedy or like yeah. a comedy about a Kenneth like a Branagh fun, movie. A really f- yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> hey, Abe, I think you worked on the last film I made that was autobiographical. I'm sorry to still be on my thing. No, I talk think, about no, no, it. No. Uh, Abe, is I that think the you, Fathers? Yes, the, the, I think that's the, the last thing I made that was like purely Adam. Yeah, uh, I was like a, and I was just there for, uh, as like a gaffer for two yeah, years. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was, yeah. Man, yeah old pals, different, old different pals. Fucking, back when I was like 
25 and I could just <laughs> no. lift everything. We're I was old. like an Adonis with my hair you waving. You were so gorgeous. I mean, you've retained the spirit that makes you gorgeous. Uh, I no am matter... still a lion. Yeah. That's true. You are a lion. But... Uh, <laughs> but right. none of the physicality of a lion. I'm more like a sleepy lion that's decimated <laughs> and just laying about. Uh, but yeah, no, Still I dangerous. remember that film. And that film, yeah, I could, I, I got the sense from that because uh, that that uh, movie tackled a lot of stuff. There's a, there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast have definitely seen the uh, the the funny, you know, kind of um, joyful Adam. But deep down, there's a sad Adam. There's a sad. There's a sad Adam, a sad uh, a Kenneth Branagh Adam, a sad Adam. <laughs> uh, I I do write more dramas than I should be writing because where the fuck are those going? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's no reason for that. Uh, because as Jessica already knows, no doubt. Uh, right, you got to make a movie that's some a thing you want to do again, right? Like especially with your first couple. Like I, I I'm sure that's how Kenneth Branagh felt. It's like I got to make something that I can do for oh, a while. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm, it's so you know? I, it's so hard at the beginning of your career. I think when you're when you're still just getting a mastery on the craft to then also saddle yourself with something you're not really into. That's just I mean, as a right. as a writer, and I'm primarily a screenwriter. Like that's the worst job in the world is having to write something I don't really care about. I will go full on lazy. Yep. I will lose all of my my discipline, and yep. it's just the worst. It's there is something really great about learning your craft as a film as a director specifically, not as a screenwriter because I don't know how you would do this, but by adapting other people's stuff. Like I think Abe and I got to be pretty good at like basic filmmaking grammar and like technique and stuff, primarily because we had to. That's where we poured our love and heart into things that cracked. Even though I wrote some things that I adapted and and directed there, I never made a thing that was Adam at cracked. Uh, but that means you get to concentrate on the craft. And I imagine as a screenwriter, Jessica, like you don't really have that. Uh, like you don't get that same joy out of like, well, at least I get to practice writing when you write a thing not, you don't not like. As, right? Not as That's often. Not I was my first script with my writing partner when we wrote together, our, our actually our strategy was like, let's adapt a book we like. Like we're not showing this to anyone. We're not sending this to anyone. Let's see if we like writing with each other and if it works and take the the part where we have to like make up shit out of it and and just see yeah. see if we can figure out how to make this work as two people work together so that's kind of a similar experience where it's like I don't want to focus on everything also because when you're adapting your own when you're making your own stuff like your ego gets in the way your insecurities get in the way like yep. you know deep down it's really shit yep. and that's a problem whereas if you're making something your friend <laughs> wrote that you think is great like some of that burden is not on you. Like you don't have the same self-criticism that takes up a lot of time to get around. It really slows you down. Uh, ego really slows you down. And uh, I think as Abe ap like aptly put it, it, you have to lie to yourself to, to not look at the ego that's, that's at the base of some of these ideas, right? Like there is an amount of self-deception you have to go through as an artist if you're going to Kenneth Branagh things, which is to say, make yourself and the thing that you're making about all of that be about you. That's, you know, you have, there's a certain amount of, you have to distance that truth from yourself. Oh yeah. It takes it, an immense amount say. of self. I mean, with my feature, I was the least experienced person on that set. You know, I was, it How was, was great. That? Like 
For some reason, yeah. I got possessed with an eerie confidence that I have never again captured that I was fine. And like, it was a strangely freeing environment because I felt like, you know, I got to make my day. So like if stuff catches on fire, like we'll just have to shoot around it. Like there's no other alternative. It was this very Zen experience, but going and like preparing for it. I was terrified. I, was... I felt <clears throat> I felt that. I felt that when initially when I was starting out too, when the sets got bigger and things became more important, so to speak. And it wasn't just like me and Mike shooting videos in our rooms. Like there there's an anxiety and I really do believe, like after in in after like twenty years of reflection at this point, looking back, I'm like that is instinctual. There's human. There's something about the human animal that it's like you get that confidence because the fear of actually removing that veil will shut you down. Yeah, it will destroy yeah. you, and you That's will not be able to function. And deep down, you know this. You know that you yeah. can't look at the abyss. So you yeah. just kind of fake it till you make it. You know. I think that's why people say I think say it's that. why people say it is because the <laughs> abyss is, is it's, it cannot be accepted. It is, there's no, there's no, it, it exists. It, it can't, can't exist. It. Yeah. If it you, exists, you yeah. shut down entirely. Yeah, so, absolutely. So I think that, yeah. There's also, there's no qualifications to be a director. <laughs> that, I, I can mean, confirm That's another that. hilarious <laughs> thing about it. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Like I never like. I mean, I'm as qualified as a person can be to be a director at this point, uh, in that I've done it and I have a degree that says that. You know what I mean? This but is like, fucked. Uh, when, yeah. <laughs> but like, when you start out, when you start out, uh, all you are is a person who decided yep. you're that, uh, and that may or may not correlate to reality at all. You know, so all uh, these all this money I, I spent on books, like <laughs> making movies by yeah. Sidney Lumet, well, yeah. I think it, like useless. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was interesting going to film school not as a director because I saw, you know, I witnessed a whole lot of almost all entirely men in their early twenties, like going through that process of mm-hmm. like I've decided I'm now going to do this, and like <laughs> right. the the the. The results were not great. Like, I mean, not just that the films weren't great, but like usually they were nightmare people to deal with. And that's what scared me off of directing for a long time was I was like, well, I don't want to I don't want to be like that. Those people seem insane and not happy. And I'm not sure they know what they're doing, even though they say they're doing it. But it also in a way. Yeah. When I finally decided to do it, I was like, they fucking did it. I can do it. There's no there's no real requirement. You just have to say I'm the one who's in charge and I'm paying you to show up. And that's it. I, I got to tell you, like one of the most rewarding aspects of my current day job of being a college professor is is people coming to me and asking me, "Can I direct this? Should I direct this?" You know, I get that all the time. Like I get that like once a week mm-hmm. probably, and my response is always the same: "Do you want to do it?" And they say yes, and I and I just say, "Congratulations, yeah. you're a director. You have the job. That's yeah. it." And and sometimes people need it. Like there, I've legitimately had college students who are like. I needed to hear that. Yeah. I'm glad I could be the one to tell you. I, Ultimately, you're the one that has to say it. You I know? also like Ultimate. to break them down immediately and then I'm like, get me that coffee. <laughs> and then they give me a coffee. I'm like, thank you, coffee fetcher. <laughs> uh, because the- Congratulations, well, European. This is part of my vehemence against auteur theory is because I think it tricks people into yeah. thinking you need to have some God-granted genius. And it's like, no. <laughs> no. Have you? No, I, there's... There's a really great 
uh, video that I that I saw in film school that I wish I could just share f- to the world, and it's J- it's a Jane Campion behind the scenes uh, documentary when she was making Portrait of a oh, Lady, yeah. and it's it's great. It starts with her being asked like somebody she had signed on to do Portrait of a Lady, which you know is the equivalent of adapting Shakespeare. Yeah. It's hard, right? Like that's an old novel, and somebody said, "Oh, I'm so interested to see what you're going to do with that." And her response to that is, oh, yeah, I'm also interested in what I'm going to do with that. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then she goes on a thing about how she's like, some people, I guess, when they read screenplays, they get visual ideas of what the film's going to be. I don't. I don't get mm-hmm. that. I just like have to think about, now what am I going to do next? And I, and I just find that so liberating and truthful. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, she doesn't, she's like, she's an incredible director, like very talented no director. You could even... Yeah, and she's just, uh, you know, she's just figuring it out as she goes, the way all of us are doing. Have you guys uh, read, uh, so Kira, uh, Kurosawa wrote a memoir. It's called Something Like an Autobiography. No. I have not read that. It's really, really good. And, uh, and it, it's basically, it documents his life, his life from birth to receiving, I think the top prize at, uh, whatever festival for Rashomon in like 50 in 1950. And, um, so he doesn't talk about later life, but he does this thing where he, uh, it's based on like his life story is based on a legend like is what he's saying. Like that's what the posit of the book, which is kind of like a Schrodinger's cat. Like it's actually, I think it's an actual reference to a Japanese fable or Japanese uh, legend. But there's this toad, and it's in a box of mirrors. Like the entire box is in- inside of it is reflective, and uh, the concept is that the toad, this particular toad, becomes so afraid of its own reflection that it begins to sweat. But the sweat has medicinal pro- like purposes okay interesting this is weird you're, you're taking us in a weird place so, i'm loving this kurosawa in this is basically saying in this book that he's the toad like he uh the idea of writing a memoir uh is basically the the box in okay the legend and the concept is that mm. like there's this sacrificial struggle that we always put on the uh we always put on the director when they go through something and kind of the same thing that I think Branagh is doing here. Cause it's a reflection, right? Uh, is the idea that the sweat that is generated from that activity benefits the world somehow. That's, that's kind of the purchase, right? That's the agreement that apparently we make with other humans that watch me, fail, watch me reflect on my failures, watch me reflect on my successes and you you will re- receive something from that. Um, and he just talks about how that's kind of a bizarre thing that we do as humans. Um, and I just thought it was pretty apt, given what our conversation was about. It's a really good book. Sounds yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty good at yeah. it. Uh, he's uh, pretty good. Pretty good at it. Speaking of pretty good at it, excellent yes. theory, Thank Jessica. You really well done we loved it and it was uh yeah this is great uh please next time you have an idea come back on the show i would love to this was wonderful 
Okay, great. Uh, where can we see that one film you directed? That one that film, uh, What Lies love? West, is available on uh, Amazon and iTunes and Apple, I think. Yeah, and Apple. And also there are DVDs available at DVD buying places. <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> you can buy a DVD on Amazon. I, can't, I think uh, Barnes & Noble, which is the bizarrest thing that ever happened, we were like, all right, Barnes & yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's fun. What's your second film going to be? Whenever it is, what is it? My be? second you film know? is going to be made someday. That's that's all I've. I, I mean, like yeah, they have right. a million yeah. candidates, and and I spend all my money on the first one. So <laughs> yeah, it'll making be making a, a film right now. I hear you. It's not fun, but it's also the greatest, you know, greatest opportunity any of us Best. can ever have. Absolutely. Best and yep. the worst. Best, Best and, the worst. and the worst. Well, I hear you. Speaking of best and the worst, uh, you can hear more <laughs> podcasts by Abe and myself uh, on He's this very best. network I'm you've the worst. stumbled upon. Or the other way around, you have to listen to find out. Some of those podcasts include Escape from the Multicurse, a dialogue about the meaning of the multiverse in media. Uh, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. A podcast about sharing media and feels. Uh, frame rate, more movie stuff like that. Uh, all those are available to you on this very network. Stick around, throw us a buck or two if you liked what you heard. We'd love to share all the work we're doing. Abe, tell us about Papa Bear. Oh yeah, we're making a movie. Small Beans, more oh, or yeah. less, is making a movie this year. Uh, uh, a semi-autobiographical film based off Michael Swain's life, um, where he found out, uh, you know, when he was around seventeen, that his dad was a gay furry. And so uh, we we decided to make a coming of age movie about uh, you know a kid who has to go th- through that and what's that all about and it's a comedy and we're making it and uh, you know we we hope you support us and we're gonna have like a Kickstarter probably kicking around in, around May this year uh, so more info on that as it develops but if you go to the pa- if you go to patreon.com slash small beans right now you can uh wa- watch slash listen to our movie diaries which we got like i don't know 60 at this point which is basically we're transparently making a movie in front of you and our you just get to hear our conversations because uh, some of you freaks like that but it's also just kind of helps us make the work uh, so that all that stuff can be found at the small beans uh, site and you know come uh come join us yeah get ready to get kicked for money hey yeah we love you yeah. all let's wrap it up shall we yeah thanks for listening everybody okay bye <laughs> <laughs>